0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, church family. Good to see you. It is uh, especially a good treat after the week we've just had to be in this room together. I mean, there was a, a, a moment where I didn't even know if we'd have this gathering. You heard our pipes busted in our office building, flooded our office, and uh um, we, uh, but I was, I was grateful to find out we uh, didn't affect this room. That was just a gift of the Lord. We're now down to one building at Northway, and this is it. You're in it. And uh, just one by one, just picking it off, baby. Um, but nonetheless, what a gift for us to be gathered. And uh, again, on the heels of, I know, a crazy week. So many folks in our city and our church still reeling and having to figure out pipes and, and water and power situations, and, um, and we'll continue to pray and serve as a body for one another and for our city. But for this brief moment here that we're together, I pray this is a respite for you. As I know it is for me, this text we're going to be in, I pray, um, uh, would bring a ton of security and a ton of encouragement for you. I'd love for you to turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. We're going to continue our study here in the book of Romans, And uh, if you've been with us here, uh, you know that Romans really chapter 6 through 8, right kind of in the middle of this book here, early to middle of this book, has uh, what we've been looking at really is this, the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and not just how the gospel, the work of Christ has saved us, but also how it sanctifies us, which a big word means how it sets us apart for something glorious, how how the, the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit... Begins to transform our lives. And we have seen in this section how the work of Christ in conjunction with the the work and the power of the Holy Spirit produces in the life of a Christian a newness, a transfer from one domain to another. That's not just a theory, it's, it's actual. And what Paul's done over the course of these three chapters, he's given us thus far seven illustrations of the newness in this transfer that we have received. We've received a new, a new life in Christ. We've received a new king, a new master that's over us, a new marriage that we've entered into, a new law that governs us, a new struggle that we will face as Christians, and a new power, as we saw last week, to help us in that struggle. And this week, we're gonna look at one final illustration before Romans is gonna take a, uh, a turn for us here, but one final illustration that describes this, this transfer that's taken place. And it's it's a new family. We're gonna talk what it, what it means to be in a new family uh, together uh, through the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think of all the transfers that takes place when you put your trust in Jesus, maybe no image is more powerful or more challenging even for some than that of family. And what it means here to have your worth and your identity so rooted and secured as sons and daughters of your heavenly father. What it means to be so rooted and secured. And I'll tell you in a week where insecurity was the theme is my power going to go off now? Is it going to come back on? Is water going to shut off or pipes going to burst? You're just constantly on edge. Maybe this text will be just a bit of blanket of warmth for you, an encouragement of the security that you have because. If you have placed your trust in Jesus, you are a son and a daughter of God secured for all eternity. Now, how do we know you're a, a son or a daughter of God? That's a great question. You know, whenever you were to take a, a biological child or an adopted child, you're, at, you're to go, hey, how do I know you're your parents' child? Few few ways we could figure it out, but probably two that are most prominent, right? One is you could could give me some legal paperwork. You could show me your birth certificate or your adoption papers that prove you are your parent's child. That's one way that I can know certifiably that you're of your mom, you're of your dad. I could also probably look at another uh, observation, and that is just simply the way that you look or you act. There's characteristics about you that that you take on from your parents that prove undoubtedly that's that child's parent right there, I can tell. And uh, for better or for worse, right? Those are two proofs, our legal paperwork and our characteristics. In this passage in Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to take those same two identifications and show us how when they are present in the life of a Christian, they serve as certifiable proof that you are in God's family, that God is your father. And, uh, and if you are in God's family, then you are saved and you are secured forever. And here's what we're going to see if you want to break this down. In, uh, in chapter 8, verses 12 through 14, we're going to look at the external characteristics the external fruit and characteristics, the kind of life that you will lead if you are a follower of Christ that will prove to everybody around you, oh, you're of your father's family. You're of the family of God. And then in verses 15 through 17, we're gonna look at the internal legal paperwork, the the legality that certifies that you are his and he is yours. The proof of the Holy Spirit through adoption in us that certifies we are His. And again, if His, then secured. And so this is a powerful text. There's a lot of work to do. I hope you brought a little notebook with you because we're going to dive in right now. Start in uh, verse 12. Let's look at the kind of the external fruit that we should be able to see in our lives that would give evidence, would give testimony that we are indeed of the family of God. In verse 12, Paul really provides a summary statement of just about everything that Matt Younger covered last week for us in verses 1 through 11. Paul says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We're we're not debtors to the flesh. In other words, in light of all that Christ has done, we are now under a new constraint, a, a new headship, Um, to uh, a new will to obey our new father. Now, I'm not gonna belabor this much here because we dealt with this extensively back in Romans chapter six, but it's the idea that when you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've been transferred from one domain, one authority, one mastery to another. You've been transferred from one tyrant father that you were forced to obey that led to your death and you've been transformed to a loving and gracious father now whom you are compelled to obey because of his grace and mercy in your life that leads to life paul says the one who is in christ is still in debt we don't we don't typically think of that as as debtors in that regard. And it's not that we owe Christ, we have some sort of penance to do for the rest of our life to repay what he's done for us. That's not what we're talking about here. It's the idea of a constraint, this new constraint, this new enslavement, this new indebtedness that we have that's fueled by grace, not law. And this debt that we have, the former debt was a have to, the new debt we have is a get to. And we've said it before, freedom in Christ doesn't mean that you're free now to live however you want if you could. Freedom in Christ means you're actually free now to live as you should, as the Holy Spirit leads us and transforms us for the glory of God and for the good of his humanity that he's redeemed. And so Paul reminds us of that reality here. Now, what is the reality of this new life? What is one clear way to know that we are actually who he says we are, sons and daughters of God. In verse 13, Paul's gonna give us both a fact and a formula that evidences our new life and identity in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 13, "'For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. "'But if by the Spirit you put to death, the deeds of the body, then you will live. Let's look at the fact first. He gives us a clear fact right here. People who live lives that are solely marked out by the living of their flesh. Remember, the flesh is just that sinful humanity that we're encased in right now. And people who live for that flesh, whose whose lives are solely marked by wanting to gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, we're not talking here About Christians who who don't struggle in that. All of us as Christians, we're gonna struggle in the flesh. We're gonna struggle with temptation, with addictions. It's gonna hit us from time to time in different ways and different people. There is a struggle here. We're not talking about that right here. We're talking about straight up living for those desires where the fruit of your life is constantly driven and produced by the flesh. And this kind of life that has no conscience, no conviction, no repentance anywhere. You are marked by this. That kind of life is evidencing the family that you belong to, which is not the family of God. It is the family of the flesh, the family of sin, the family of Satan. And the end result of being a child in that family is death and destruction. Paul even tells us, he told us this back in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, Paul said this, now the works of the flesh are evident. Here's Here's you can just tell when the flesh is at work in our life. When your life is driven by all forms of sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul's just rattling them off right now. These are just fruit of the flesh. And when your your life is... um, is indicative of that. It's just characteristic of who you are through and through. Paul says that's evidence of someone who will not inherit the kingdom of God. They are living under the flesh, under the rule and reign of the flesh. But however, Paul also tells us here in Romans that people whose lives are solely marked out in a different way, marked by living for God, living by the spirit of God, for the fruit of God, not the fruit of the flesh, but the fruit of the spirit. They are evidencing which family they belong to. And the end result of being a child in that family, when it's God who's reigning over you and you're living for him in his kingdom, that, that is a life that's indicative of eternal life that is to come. Paul again tells us the same fact in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 24, he says this, the fruit of the spirit is also obvious. It's marked by love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against which there there is no law over that. Those who belong to Christ, there's that belonging language, that family language. Those who belong to Jesus Christ, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And so notice back here in Romans, there's no command here in verse 12 and 13 that we're heading into. There's no no command here. Uh, This is just a fact. This is just a fact. Your deeds, the fruit that comes from your desires, provides evidentiary testimony as to which family we belong to, either God's or Satan's himself in the flesh. And it's indicative of our ultimate inheritance as well. Now, I have to pause right there and go back to what we dealt with in Romans chapter 7. We're not talking about struggle here. Because if that's the case, we're all hosed. We'd look at every one of us. If you took a two-hour clip from my life this past week in the middle of Snowmageddon, depending on which clip that you grabbed, might tell a different story of which family I belong to. Um, uh, So we gotta be careful about. It's not the ultimate measure here. We're talking about a life that's characterized solely by this, driven by the flesh or driven by the spirit. And what he says here is that a true Christian though is going to ultimately be marked by a fruit of the spirit in your life. That's what's leading you ultimately with struggle. Struggle is in place. And speaking of struggle, notice Paul provides for us in verse 13, not only a fact, but he also provides a formula for how a Christian will actually struggle with sin. This too will serve as evidence of the family that we belong in. He he says here, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Now, the old King James Version, not too many of us use these days, if, says it this way. If by the Spirit you are mortifying the sins of the flesh, then you will live. Morte means death. It's the idea of killing, by killing the deeds of the flesh, the sins of the flesh. The old Puritan uh, pastor, writer John Owen wrote one of the most powerful and yet difficult to read books you'll ever read uh, on just this one verse called the mortification of sin. I'd encourage you to read it. If you have about two years to work through the old English, you can do it. It's a tiny little book. But this one verse that he wrote on, this one verse in verse 13 synthesizes everything we've covered in Romans 6, 7, and 8 on how the Christian, how the true child of God will relate to sin and the entanglements of our flesh that we battle in this life. Three quick observations on verse 13. Number one, as Christians, we will struggle with sin. We wouldn't have this verse if the reality of sin was not present in a Christian's life. So there's that second observation. We will, as Christians, we will struggle with sin for the rest of our lives. Not just a little beginning at the beginning of our Christian life, the rest of our lives. The Greek construction of this verse is in the present active tense, which means a continuous action that will always be in motion. In other words, as long as you and I are in these fallen bodies, until Jesus returns or we go home and are transferred, uh, transition to new bodies, as long as we're in these bodies, we will battle with sin. That should be an expectation for the Christian. We're gonna have to face this thing head on. But third, I will tell you from this verse, Christians can and will experience victory in that struggle with both personal intentionality and divine intervention. This is the formula for how we're gonna battle this. It means there's there's a part you have to play in battling your sin, there's a part God is going to play on your behalf through the Holy Spirit. And you cannot have one without the other. And this is one of the big misnomers and even my own experience as a Christian and my struggles with sin and what I've seen in the lives of others that I've walked with, there tends to be either one extreme or another of belief on how we're to fight sin. Uh, One of those that I've battled personally is that it's up to me. To to work my way into victory through sin. It's totally 100% up to me that God's job was to save me. He kind of puts the ball at the rim. I've got to be the one to finish it through. And what it looks like in so many lives is okay, I got this addiction I have, this temptation I have, it's just got to be sheer willpower and positive thinking to work my way through this. And I've got to have all forms of certain legalisms or asceticisms or intellectualisms to try, to try to work my way out of this thing. And, and I'll, I'll invoke all forms of external um, deeds of the flesh to try to fight the deeds of the flesh. So I'll, I'll use, uh, invoke external accountabilities just in pure, raw human form. I, I've shared this story, I guess, weeks ago. But remember, when I was in college, my roommates and I were trying to battle sin well, but we were battling it the wrong way, and we, we thought we would just use a calendar and we each had our own color. And every time we had a lustful thought, if we saw an image we shouldn't look at, if we watched a show we shouldn't see, and if we, if, we, uh, if we lied about something, whatever, we, we put a little, our little color on that deal. As if that all of a sudden is gonna rid out our sin. Now, what it did was give us a dadgum rainbow on our calendar by the end of the, the month, and we were still entangled in sin. And what we did for that is whoever had the least amount of colors, the other guys would buy a mistake. So now we're gonna shame the two dudes who had the rainbow going on and then we're gonna buy a stake for the dude who just was a little bit better. Like that brought us no freedom at all. It was just sheer human power. And here's the deal. When we fight sin that way, it is exhausting. It puts you in the cycle of do more, try harder, fail, repeat. Do more, try harder, fail, Repeat. And it's like being on a hamster wheel and you just can't stop and you're exhausted. It's like being placed in a rock quarry and told that there's this 250 ton rock that you by yourself got to get it across to the other side. And you're just grappling with it. How am I gonna do this? You just you can't do it. On the other end of though, I've seen extremes on the other end. Folks who go a little bit more mystic route. Oh, well, it has nothing to do with me. It's all God. And I know this because I've asked certain people in my life. I go, man, how are you fighting sin right now? Like, how are you addressing some of the, the sin struggles that are in your life that you face and the temptations. And I had one person I remember it tell me, oh, I'm not. Oh, you're not? What is that? No, and they dropped Exodus 14, 14. You don't need to do anything. You just need to stand still and God will fight this for you. And I was like, really? Well, first of all, outside of ripping that out of context from Exodus 14, second of all, how's that working for you? Does that mean you're, at, you're making no attempt whatsoever to remove any provisions from your flesh that would entangle you? No aspect of trying to train your heart towards righteousness. Like, what does that look like? No, I don't need to remove any provision because that's removing opportunities for God to flex. And I'm just gonna pray my way through this thing. Okay, let me be straight. Verse 13 doesn't tell us to go to either one of those extremes. God has not called you to lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. And God has not called you to do all the digging yourself. God has provided help. And, uh, and we see this in verse 13. Notice how the two are joined here. He says, by the spirit, you are going to put to, deed, put to death the deeds of the flesh. There is a partnership with the Holy Spirit that must be in place here in order to see victory in one's life. And this is the formula for how a Christian is to battle sin right here. First, God provides help, praise God, to the Holy Spirit that he has given us. And this is God's grace in our lives, in our salvation, in our redemption, in our sanctification. No parent brings home a newborn child and lays that child in the middle of the floor and says, good luck, hope it works out for you. No parent would do that. A good parent is going to provide assistance to help that child grow and mature. Likewise, as children of God, we have been given the Holy Spirit within us. The third member of the Trinity of God who indwells within us to help aid us in our struggle to conform to the image of Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 16 verse 7, he told his disciples if I go away, it's actually to your advantage. Why? Because once I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to be your what? Your helper. Your helper. It's not that we don't have any choice in the matter in our struggles. We have a helper though to fight those struggles. The Holy Spirit whose job is to first regenerate our hearts through faith in Jesus Christ, meaning he's gonna take that dead heart and make it alive, make it new. And with so is gonna change our desires so that the things that we once longed for over time, they will become distasteful to us because they do not represent the family that we're in. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of sin and when we stray from God and to repent and return. The Holy Spirit's job is to empower us to resist and to flee temptations when they come our way. Not see how close we can get to them without stumbling, but to flee from them. The Holy Spirit's job is to do that. Conviction is a good thing that you never wanna turn off. You want that voice. The Holy Spirit's job is to counsel us with wisdom on how to walk in holiness and avoid the dumb taxes that so many of us have paid. The Holy Spirit does this. Now, we're going to look, we dealt with it some last week, we're going to look more at the role of the Holy Spirit in two weeks as our helper in the midst of our sufferings. I'm going to do some more in-depth work there, but imagine that rock quarry scenario. Being called to lift this 250-pound 250-ton rock to one side or the other while there's a bulldozer sitting right next to you that we never tap into, that we never use. And imagine if that bulldozer is actually within you. Like this is what the Holy Spirit has given us. It's not just ethereal. There's an actual power to change from the inside out our affections, our desires, and then actually enable us to do what he calls us to do next, which is to put to death the deeds of the flesh. There is a work for us in this. By the spirit, we must mortify the sins of the flesh to kill the deeds of our flesh. So John Owen wrote, you either need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That this is is battle language right here. This is an all out call to war for the Christian against the deeds of our flesh that we're not to grow in apathy or passivity towards our fight towards sin. We are to actively engage, actively pursue Christ, act, actively flee the entanglements of sin in our life. This is, as John Piper called, a wartime mentality, not a peacetime mentality. And As long as we're in these fallen bodies, we will never be in peacetime mentalities towards the sin that so easily entangles us. I love looking through old World War II photos, not just of what happened in the Pacific or European theater, what happened right here in Dallas, Texas. It's fascinating to go look at pictures of downtown Dallas, or even when I was in Denton, I was looking at downtown Denton um, in the 40s when we were having these scrap metal drives. Everybody's game on. Like this, this war is so significant, we don't have time to waste resources we don't have time to just leisurely take strolls. We have been called to battle. This is a spiritual war that we are against. And everybody in that World War II, man, you look at pictures of Dallas, there's scrap metal all over downtown. Just people donating everything they got. Even this past week in Snowmageddon, man, you just see people going to work. You saw at the beginning of our service, the pictures Man, of just people going to serve the needs of others, pulling people out of ditches, helping provide housing, food, whatever it takes, because we're in wartime mentality here, not peacetime. This is how we've been called to deal towards the deeds of our flesh. And notice specifically, he says the deeds of our flesh. Now, I will never be one to say that our focus has to be purely external. We know it's got to start here in the heart. It's got to start with the the affections of our heart it's got to start being driven by God's grace, the work of the spirit to cleanse and purify, to change our attitudes and our affections. And we believe that as Jesus said out of the out of the wherever the your your heart is or wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. It starts here. But he specifically calls us here to actually kill the deeds of our flesh. There is a work to do with the deeds. And that is significant here because you can't always put to death sin's temptations. You can't always put to death sin's phone calls when King Sin tries to call you and ask you to come hang out. You can't, always, you can't always put those phone calls and those invitations to death, but you can put to death by the Spirit's help, our acting upon those invitations. In other words, you might not be able to prevent yourself from being tempted to covet, but you can keep yourself getting in stupid loans you might not be able to your, uh, prevent yourself from being tempted through noticing an attractive man or woman, but you can prevent yourself from jumping into an immoral relationship with him. There is a work to do. The Spirit's work certainly is internal, changing our motivations, supernaturally providing and resourcing for us, gifting us, killing the roots of lust and pride and idolatry that lie deep within us. But our work with the Spirit's help involves actively cutting off the oxygen supply lines that feed those temptations and desires and not acting upon them. Paul's gonna say later on in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and yet make no provision for the flesh. Don't make provision for it. Like guard against the things that you know are not going to be helpful for your heart, that are not going to be helpful for your mind. Don't make provision for the flesh. Don't sew garments that will feed your flesh. Be like an alcoholic setting up a bar in their living room. Why would you do that? Like guard against it, fight against those things. And I've said this before, y'all need to understand this. There's a difference biblically between legalism and discipline. Legalism is when you are doing something in order to earn the merit or the favor of someone else. So your motives are off, why you do what you do is off. That's legalism. We're not talking about legalism here. Why? Because God has already given us his merit. He's already given us his favor, fully and sufficiency in Jesus Christ. You don't have to perform for God because God has already performed for you and is satisfied in it. That frees you. Discipline now is on the other side of this thing where now I've already been given that favor, I know that I am a sheep. the hymn says, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. I know that tendency is within me. I remember Howard Hendricks, one of my prophets at seminary going, I know I'm an adulterer. I know I am. I'm just not gonna give myself the chance to prove it. Like I'm not gonna make provision for that flesh. I'm I'm, I'm gonna fight against this. And discipline now is training my heart to go where I know my heart's joy truly lies. That's a good thing. Discipline is is removing those provisions because I know that that doesn't lead to the pathway of life. Like that and the work of the Spirit fueling us, empowering us to then put to death the deeds of the flesh. This is a good thing. By the way, this is the foundation of what we talk about in our gospel care class here at Northway. If you find yourself entrenched in an addiction or a struggle right now, if you find yourself entrenched in shame and condemnation and these cycles that are in, I would encourage you to jump into one of these classes. It's just discipleship 101 of just how to understand who you are in Christ, the nature of sin, and the pathway forward that God has given us through his word and the power of the Holy Spirit to find freedom in these areas. The whole point of this section, this first half of this section, is in verse 14. When Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. One of the ways that we're going to be able to tell that who God says we are is true is we're going to see it present in our life by following His Spirit, not our flesh. Doesn't mean we're not going to struggle, but it's not going to be the indicative characteristic of our life that is consumed by the flesh. We are following the lead of the Holy Spirit putting to death the deeds of the flesh, being empowered by him to do so. If you are a true child of God, the spirit of God will lead you. Our job is to follow because that's what true sons do. I can tell you right now, I've got my daughters right here. You can ask them to go home with you today. And I can tell you they're not. If that happened, one, I'm gonna notify Officer Joe. That's the first thing. But second of all, they're not gonna follow after you because that's not the family they're in. They're going to go home with my wife and I, because that's the family they're that in. That's indicative of our girls. Do they have some times every now and then when they want to go another way? Absolutely, and we deal with those, don't we, girls? But that's not indicative of who they are. And so the same with us. Now, verse fifteen through seventeen, Paul shows us here another evidence, and this one is a little bit more tender. Paul is going to show us another evidence that proves our sonship, and our security in the family of God. And it's because of a legal and actual transfer that has taken place through adoption. Again, verse 12 through 14 is the external fruit that shows we're His. Verse 15 through 17 is the internal paperwork. Watch this, verse 15, Paul says, "'For you to not receive the spirit of slavery "'to fall back into fear.'" Now, notice the word spirit there. Most of your translations should be lowercase s. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit right now. We're simply talking about one's relational disposition towards God. If you are a follower of Christ, you have received not a spirit of slavery and terrorizing fear that makes you obey God, That's not what you've received. That's not the family that we have been adopted into. That's not the family we've been saved into. That's not how we operate in this relationship. It's altogether different. Let me put it this way. God has given us earthly fathers um, who apart from sin and brokenness in their life, the very creation of fathers was meant to image the father heart of God. Like there is a, imperfect material shadow on this earth in human fathers that is meant to display in some form the immaterial, invisible, divine image of God as father. As fathers, and I can tell you this from personal testimony, I have the opportunity to either spur on that image to my daughters or I have the opportunity to spurn that image for my daughters. I realize While no earthly father is perfect, some of us have had fathers who really did help paint a helpful picture of God. And their love and their presence in our lives, their tenderness, their nearness to us has made it easier for us to trust in God as father because of the image we had in our earthly fathers. But sadly, I also know that many of us, myself included, have had fathers who, because of their own sin and their own brokenness, gave us an awful picture either through their anger, which produced terrorizing fear and performance pressure on and around them, through their absence, which leaving us feel neglected and abandoned, whatever it may be. We obeyed those fathers oftentimes not because we wanted to, but because we had to. And so as a result, it became all too easy for many of us to project that image on the God. And to this day, it's why so many of us may have a hard time following God as father. We assume he's just like our earthly dads, who's just an authoritative ogre or an absentee landlord in our lives. God says that's not the reality that you were saved into. That is not the family that he adopted you into. That is not who he is. He says in the middle of verse 15, if you have put your trust in Jesus, you have actually received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now notice your translations probably have that as capital S. We're not talking about a disposition here. We are talking about a legal transfer of relational identity from slaves to sons under the headship of the Father God through the Holy Spirit. You are no longer a slave to the tyrant father you once had. You are a son. You are a daughter of your heavenly father. A relational identity has been transferred. Remember, slaves obey not because they love their master, but because they're afraid of the recompense if they don't. A son, however, while he certainly reveres and honors his father and receives discipline when he goes astray, doesn't obey simply out of lawful obligation, but out of love's adoration. The Spirit doesn't lead you like your old father did, out of terror and fear, but out of love and grace that has clothed you and redeemed you. Why has this happened? Because he has adopted you and I out of that slavery into sonship. I've said before adoption's taught me a lot of things. Many of you may know I adopt two of my wife and I adopted two of our daughters. And uh, I've learned so much just about the Father heart of God. I've learned so much about just the imagery that Paul uses here in adoption, and it's it's messy. There's no romanticized story here where like we're this perfect rescuing family that grabbed these girls and aren't you know it's not that at all. I mean we're more grateful to have them than maybe they have to us. Um, and 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 the truth is it's been hard. It's been difficult. We've had many many. Hard conversations along the way, but beautiful conversations along the way. But there's something that I experienced early on that just took me to Romans 8 about just that relational transfer. And as as you can imagine, our daughters came from some hard backgrounds, came from some trauma, worked through five different families in the foster care system for two years. Um, Biological parents who were in federal prison at the time. A lot of trauma and a lot of distrust that came in. And we had to do a lot of relational working to create that trust to that family together. And I'll never forget, though, the first moment when my, the oldest of the two that adopted Rebecca climbed up in my lap when we were living in California and for the first time really just expressed how grateful she was that I would be her daddy. And for me to look at her and reciprocate how grateful I am that she is my daughter. Like that, that The power of that transfer, of that relational identity, is huge. And Paul says right here, do you remember the spiritual orphanage that you came out of? That of slavery and fear and destruction and death. Now look at the family that you've been brought into. Through Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, and the power of the Holy Spirit who has adopted you. And this legal transfer isn't just legal paperwork. It is for the purpose of creating intimate access that you otherwise never had to where you can cry out for the first time to your heavenly father as father. Like you can express that to him. That's why he says, Abba, Father. And I realize a lot of teaching's been done here and want to talk about the intimacy of, of the word daddy that's used there or whatever. Here's what that is. Paul's using... Two different words to say the same thing. He uses the Hebrew word Abba for father, and then it's also using the Greek word pater for father. It's telling us here, not only do we have access to God that we can call him father, we have access together as Jew and Gentile. Part of the new family here is there is not a superiority between one. There's not varsity and junior varsity in God's family. We are all one. There is no supremacy. We are one. All of us, different races, ethnicity, ethnicities, backgrounds, socio-political status, whatever it may be, your testimony, of your background, whatever it may be, at the foot of the cross, we have all become one. And we all have equal access. I can tell you there's not first-rate daughters in the sumlin household and second-rate daughters. It's not as if my adoptive daughters are less than my biological daughters. They both have equal identity, equal access together. We are one family, and we get to experience as Christians the intimacy and the access of getting to to crawl up in our daddy's lap, our father's lap, and expressing to him the intimacy of father powerful statement, by the way. My girls love to play the game. We've all done it with our parents. We call them by their first name. They love to call me Shay every now and then. Just gets under my skin. They know it. And I always gently just rebuke the mess out of them and just say, listen, there's 7.7 billion people in the world that get to call me Shay. There are only five people in the world that get to call me father. Don't waste it. And in the same way, we have an access to God unparalleled to any other access because of what the spirit has done in adopting us. Now, how do you know this is true? Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is the legal proof that nobody else can see, but you know to be true. Verse 12 through 15 is the testimony to God that you are his. Verse 16 is his testimony to you. That he is yours. Verse 12 through 15 is you crawling up in your heavenly father's lap and expressing your your sonship and daughtership to him. And verse 16 is him responding to you of his fatherly love towards you that has all been made possible by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's voice to our soul that confirms through illumination, conviction, correction, comfort, peace, and access that we are his, and we can never, ever be taken away from this family. And he says in verse 17, And if you are children of God, then you are heirs. Y'all know what that word heirs means? We've talked about this before. An heir is a child whose father says to them, Son, daughter, all that I have is yours. Heirs are certain recipients of the father's estate everything. It's me saying to my girls, all that I have is yours. $250 in our checking account, a ginormous 12-passenger van that you can impress your friends with, and a mortgage payment. So don't spend it all at once. They are heirs of my glorious pastoral estate. Paul is saying here, as children of God, we are co-heirs with Christ. Whatever Christ receives, So do we, because there are not illegitimate sons or daughters. Equal access, equal heirs. What is it we inherit? Is it just the glories of the father's estate? Is it streets of gold and pearled gates and incorruptible bodies? Is that what we get the most? No, look at verse 17. Heirs of what? God. He could have listed all sorts of things that we are going to inherit, and we will. But the most important thing that a child of God inherits is God himself. What you get the most is not your father's stuff. You get your father. His glory ruling and reigning the eternal presence of the father. It's ours. We have it already. And yet it is still to come. We have tasted of it. We have intimate access and presence, power available to us right now. And we know one day. Just as Christ is sitting right now at the right hand of the Father, so too shall we. The best is still yet to come. And we wait for it and hope. And Paul says, if that's what Christ inherited, that's what you'll inherit, guaranteed. Why? Because you're sons and daughters. It's a fact. But don't miss this. It's not the only thing we inherit. What else do we inherit at the end of verse 17? Notice something that's also true of Christ. That is, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. How many want heaven? How many want to be sitting at the right hand of the Father one day? You look forward to it in hope, anticipation, right? Because that's where Jesus is. He, that's where he is, that's what we get. But you know what Christ got before he got there? Suffering. And if you are a co-heir with Christ, then you can experience suffering as well. You go, well, I don't want that inheritance. <laughs> I want the latter. I don't want the former. Christ said the same thing. He didn't want it, but Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us that he endured it. He endured the cross, despising the shame with the joy that was set before him. Before there comes the crown, there must be a cross. It is appointed that we must walk through sufferings in this life. More on that next week. But do you see the point of this text here? Part of our new life in Christ means that part of being a new, in this new family means that we're gonna evidence it in two primary ways. One, through an external witness, a life that is marked by serving and living for God and his righteousness and not our flesh. A daily struggle that we will engage with with the Spirit's help of putting to death the deeds of the flesh and following hard after the Spirit's lead in our life. As well as an internal witness the Holy Spirit within us, legally adopting us, giving us intimate access to the Father, awaiting the full inheritance of his estate, his glory to come and persevering through suffering by his grace in the meantime. This is what's yours in Christ. And this is your security in a world full of insecurities. Church, relish in this. Relish in the life that God has saved you from, saved you for, and saved you into. It is all by the Spirit's work. If you have not received this, if you are in this room today and you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are living on that treadmill of exhaustion, living in a world of constant insecurity, oh, the invitation is there. There is a family waiting for you. By trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, who absorbed the penalty that your sin was due, which was death. He took that for you. He shed his blood so that your sin can be atoned for, can be cleansed, can be clothed in his righteousness. And by transferring your trust from yourself to Jesus Christ, promises the assurance of a transfer to a new family, to a new mastery, to a new king, to a new life. Promises the assurance of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who will help you conform you to the image of Jesus day by day until Christ returns or takes you home. And you can rest in that security. Put your trust in Jesus. For the rest of us who have done that, what an opportunity for us to relish in that. And we do this each and every week by remembering the work of Christ that has done this for us through communion. And we want to celebrate that together here right now.